the National Archives podcast series, Coroner's Inquests, presented by Cathy Chater. Now, I don't know about the rest of you, but when I started my family history, I didn't bother much about the deaths. I was much more interested in baptisms and marriages because, you know, they help you to push back and to create your family tree very quickly. And anyway, I knew they were all dead, so I wasn't that bothered. But then, in the course of doing the same course as Audrey, I discovered coroner's inquests. And they are a fascinating source of information, not just about how people died, but how they lived, where they lived, who they lived with, how they earned their living. And so I want to try to um, give you a flavour of the sort of information that you can find and where to look for it, but it is quite a complicated subject. Also, of course, for those of you who are local historians, this will also give you quite a lot of information about people um, you know, in the local village. And to remember also that for many small rural places, an inquest might be the most interesting thing that happened in the entire year. The whole village would turn out no television, no radio, no Olympics. How were they going to entertain themselves? Well, they went to inquests because it was the real neighbours' lives. I also hope to show you that there are lots of ways that your ancestors might have been involved. But to give you a flavour of the kind of um, thing that people heard about at inquests, I don't know if you know um, James Woodford, the diary of a country parson. He's an 18th century um, rector, I think, rather than a vicar, in Norfolk. And he writes, on um, the 28th of September, 1765, Dr. Clark's cook maid Mary was this morning found out in concealing a dead child in her box, of which she had delivered herself yesterday morning. Whether she murdered it or not is not yet known, but will be tried by the coroner and jury next Monday. So, of course, there must have been two or three days of complete speculation about this. Then, two days later, September the 30th, the coroner, Mr Norton, with the jury, took inquest this afternoon upon the deceased child, a boy, of Dr Clark's maid Mary, and brought her in not guilty. Even so, how did she go on living there? What happened next? Well, that's the kind of information that you can find out about village life. Now, I'm going to, as I say, coroners, um, tracking down coroners' papers is quite a complicated process. There's a fair number of them before about 1750 in the National Archives but they're quite complicated to find. There are some very good um, leaflets, handouts about this. In fact, um, Legal Information 30 is a leaflet on um, coroner's inquests. They are online, so you'll be able to access them there. It's quite complicated to use. Um, the, basically, people were, the coroners were supposed to hand in their papers um, to the quarter session so they could get their expenses. They then went on to the um, assizes if there were any sort of um, further legal proceedings needed or they were passed for review to either the Court of King's Bench or under um, Henry the, or up until the, from Henry VII until um, Oliver Cromwell. They went to the Court of Star Chamber. 
but it's quite a complicated process. So I'm not going to, um, but as I say, there are a lot have survived in the National Archives. Um, from 1837 onwards, of course, you will know from the death certificates whether an inquest was held or not. It may be, you know, in the cause of death column that it will say something like inquest, you know, or, or verdict or something. And sometimes, though, if it's natural causes, you, the only way you will know is that it's the coroner who signs the death certificate, not the registrar. If you see coroner who signed it, you know that an inquest was held, so you can start to look. So the period between sort of about 100 years or so, between the mid-18th century and the start of um, general national registration, is the period when it's actually most difficult to find out whether an inquest was held and to actually find out what happened. So that's the period I'm going to be concentrating on. However, briefly, I will deal with um, sort of modern uh, inquest papers because you may be interested in those. Now, a modern inquest papers will stay with the coroner's office for about 15 years. They are closed for 75 years. After 15 years, they are usually deposited in the local county record office, but they can be destroyed after 15 years. Because when you think about it, there are hundreds, I mean thousands, literally thousands, of very, very routine inquiries, um, inquests, that don't you know, have any really great interest. So they can, as I say, be destroyed. Some have to be kept. All those before 1875 have to be kept. After that, murders. Also those that have some particular interest, medical interests, legal, sociological, something like that, that have some particular point. So all I can say is may your ancestors die in an interesting manner because the papers will be preserved. However, for those of us with more routine deaths in our family, the best source is going to be newspaper reports in the local newspaper. My grandfather, for example, died in 1963, so the papers uh, wouldn't be accessible to me. I can't think they'd have been kept. He was in his 80s, he was diabetic, he fell downstairs, which upset his insulin balance, and he died. But there had to be an inquest, and there still has to be, because no doctor had seen him in the last two weeks. So there had to be an inquest. My grandmother was devastated. She thought people would think she pushed him. But anyway, so there was. It was a very routine inquest. I looked it up in the local paper just out of, you know, and it was a very, very slow week for news. They mentioned in the first paragraph that there had been an inquest, you know, natural causes, and then there were two or three columns about his life. Not terribly interesting life. As I say, very slow week for news in, in the Middlesex Chronicle. But there was an enormous amount about him. You know, my grandmother had told them, they got his work record and all the rest of it. So from about, up to about the middle of the, the 20th century, when newspaper production changed, from the end of the 19th century to the middle of the 20th century, the very, very best information you will get about the inquest will probably come from the local paper. They used to send trainee journalists off there to practice their shorthand as well. So you do get an enormous amount there. 
But it is always worth tracking down the original papers if you can. And like I say, after they've left the coroner's office, they are deposited with the county record office usually. If you want to access them before the 75 years for one reason or another, you need to get permission not from the um, record office but from the coroner who will give permission to the record office. Um, so it's a bit sort of complicated, but that's the process. So that's uh, you know, a sort of brief introduction to um, where the modern and the very old uh, coroner's papers are. And now let's have a look at the people involved in the actual inquest. The first of all is the coroner. Now the coroner's old name was the Crowner. And this gives a clue as to what he was, do he was there to do. His job, which is first mentioned in 1194, was to make sure that the Crown got any money that was due to it when someone died. And because the Crown could, in certain circumstances of death, claim certain property, the um, monarch had someone in there to make absolutely certain that the Crown got everything due to it. Um, before 1888, coroners were either elected or they were appointed by what are called privileged jurisdictions. Various places had the right to appoint their own coroners, Otherwise, they were county coroners. Now, those of you who have Scottish ancestors, I'm sorry to say, no coroners in Scotland. It was actually the Procurator Fiscal's responsibility to examine any death that might be deemed suspicious. But there was no one you know, with a particular um, job to do that. From 1895 onwards... There are what's called fatal accident inquiries, which are conducted by the sheriff's office. But as I say, generally, there was no one person whose responsibility it was within a particular area to look for um, suspicious deaths. In 1829, a chap called Jervis, who wrote a handbook for coroners, listed their ten functions. And the first was to be conservators of the peace, Coroners were, by their office, automatically magistrates. So they had the, right, the, um, the powers of a magistrate to um, send someone to court to you know, various, carry out various legal functions. Their second job was to conduct inquests into deaths, which is the one that we always think of, but there were lots of others. The third, to inquire of other felonies manslaughter, negligence, that kind of thing. And the fourth, and this is a real sort of hangover from medieval times, and it's still um, partly the coroner's job, and that is to inquire of treasure trove. If someone um, finds uh, bullion, it has to be gold or silver, it is the coroner who is called in to determine whether this was lost accidentally or whether it, is, um, it was hidden to be returned for later, but then, for some reason or another, no one came back to collect it. So the coroner determines this. If it was lost accidentally, it's finders keepers. If it's deemed to have been hidden, then it belongs to the crown. It's, again, treasure trove. So that is the sort of the medieval thing of claiming it. But it's still true. I've got a thing here, a newspaper thing, where a chap who found a gold coin in Oxfordshire, 
it was the coroner who came out to check whether this had been, well, a hoard of coins, whether they'd been lost or hidden. So, inquire a treasure trove. Now, the next one, to inquire of royal fishes, sturgeons or whales. So, if, um, well, you know, a whale gets washed up on the Thames just outside here, it was the duty of the coroner to rush down and claim this very, very valuable fish for the crown. When I started to prepare this lecture, I knew someone whose father-in-law was a coroner in Berkshire. So I rang him up. These are royal fishes, I said. He said, I'll get back to you. (laughs) In fact, um, it was abolished. There was a big sort of um, review of of, uh, the coroner's job in the late 19th century, and that was one of the ones that was abolished. They were also supposed to look into shipwrecks. That, too, was abolished at that time. Then uh, coroners were there to take appeals in felony, to take the confessions and abjurations of felons. Um, They could also declare people who didn't turn up for a trial or for whatever reason. They could declare them as outlaws. And although we think of that, again, as a very, very medieval thing, in fact, technically, being an outlaw wasn't abolished until 1879. And there is a very, very useful leaflet in the... um, uh, from the National Archives, about outlaws and how they you know, got over it and the like. Now, the next thing, the number nine, was to execute process if the sheriff of the county could not. In medieval times, it was a very, very powerful political job. But over the years, the sort of responsibilities and the rights have dwindled a great deal. And then last of all, number ten... It was the job of the coroner to return inquisitions on a murderer. Right up to 1977, the coroner and jury could say who they thought the murderer was in the case. The last case in which a murderer was named uh, by the coroner and jury was in 1975, and that was the inquest on Sandra Rivette, Lord Lucan's nanny. That was the very last one. So now um, the jury or the coroner may not say who they believe done it. They can look very hard at them, but they must not name the person. So as I said, before 1888, county coroners were elected. They were elected for life. They were not permitted because it was an elective job. The electors chose that person. They were not permitted to have deputies. This wasn't usually an enormous problem because a big county, well, somewhere like Yorkshire, might have three. Middlesex had two. So if one was incapacitated, the other could cover. Problems arose when you were a small county, um, like Monmouthshire in the early 19th century, Um, the county coroner there was imprisoned for debt. So all the bodies were stacking up. The authorities had to get all the households of the county to sign a petition to have him, you know, dismissed for negligence. So they ran round getting the petition signed, took it up to London. The king um, executed a writ to say, yes, they could have a new election. But they still had to have an election. So, you know, if you wanted to do something nefarious, early 19th century Monmouthshire was probably a good time and place to do it. 
However, um, privileged jurisdictions, and there were all sorts of places that for one reason or another had the right to appoint their own coroners, could also appoint deputies. Most of them did. Now, um, good old Jeremy Gibson, the Gibson Guide to Coroner's uh, Records, is a very, very useful county-by-county um, county summary of all the jurisdictions within a county and where the records are. So we're in Surrey, so let's just have a quick look at Surrey. There are some in the National Archives, some of those here from the very early medieval period, and they have been published. Quite a number of the medieval ones have actually been published, so it's always worth checking out first. Surrey History Centre in Woking, there are the county bills. Kingston was a privileged borough, so Kingston had its own records and kept them in, the, um, in its Museum and Heritage Service. Maidstone, I know, was a privileged borough as well and keeps its own records in its um, you know, local uh, record office. And then you've got places like, well, Clapham was part of the Duchy of Lancaster. So just the parish of Clapham is part of the Duchy of Lancaster, another privileged jurisdiction. Duchy of Lancaster stuff is all in the National Archives. So if you're not careful, you, you know, by checking the jurisdiction, first of all, you can spend a lot of time whizzing around, or I've done it, everybody's done it. You pitch up and you say, I want the inquest for, and they say, no, no, 20 miles away. So check in advance, and the Gibson Guide is a good start. And so here we are. Um, the Surrey History Centre has the county um, records and then Rygate Division, Guildford Division and Croydon. Again, um, a privileged borough, but they deposit their records with London Metropolitan Archives. So um, Surrey is actually a relatively straightforward county. There are lots of um, counties which have all these odd... You know, the privileged jurisdictions, they could be a manor, they could be an honour, they could be um, all sorts of places. The easiest way to actually, uh, you know, check the county coroners, certainly records, for records of them, um, they had to, until 1860, county uh, coroners were paid per um, inquest. After 1860, they got a salary. But before that, um, from 1752 onwards, they were paid £1 per inquest. They got an extra six and six for a murder. And they got ninepence per mile to travel there, but nothing for the return journey. Now, because they had all these expenses, they had to submit a list of what they'd done to the uh, quarter sessions for them to be paid. And in many cases, these are the only papers that have survived. Sometimes it's just a list of the expenses. Occasionally, you find the inquest papers attached to them. Now, some record offices, like London Metropolitan Archives, have taken them all out and have filed them separately as inquest papers. In other record offices, they have been left within the quarter sessions. So it's always worth checking this, where, um, you know, where if your ancestor 
uh, came from a particular village, it's always just worth checking the inquest papers and seeing if there was an inquest there. Because obviously they'll give the name of the person, they'll give the verdict, because they've got six and six if it was a murder, and they'll give the distance, where it was, so they could be paid their mileage rate. So those are the county coroners. Um, the privileged jurisdictions were generally much smaller. The City of London is, um, the City of Westminster, also privileged jurisdictions. So they don't have these sort of expenses because it tends to be a rather small area. Um, as I say, there are things like the Duchy of Lancaster, which is Crown property. Those records are in the National Archives. Um, the Palatinates of Chester and Durham, they are privileged jurisdictions with their own coroners, and the records are here. Two others that you might bear in mind of the ones that are here and uh, may involve some of your ancestors. Um, the High Court of Admiralty. Technically, it was supposed to investigate, as well as, you know, sort of deaths at sea. It had its own coroner. It was also supposed to investigate deaths on or in the River Thames. In fact, I haven't seen that very much happen at all. What usually happened was um, the bodies that people found in the Thames... Does anybody remember reading um, how's it, um, Our Mutual Friend? You know, where there, you know, the river and there's a body... And Dickens says quite rightly that the authorities on either side of the river paid people who brought in bodies. Middlesex was more generous than Surrey, so pretty well all the bodies <laughs> wound up on the Middlesex side of the river. So those um, inquests were done there, although technically it should have been High Court of Admiralty. Occasionally, you will find, you know, one in the High Court of Admiralty, but those tend to be um, very much concerned with more violent things, what was called death and mayhem on the high seas. A lot of that was just quietly slipped overboard, but things like, um, you know, mutinies where someone died, they would be investigated by that court. The other thing about sailors as well is if they died of natural causes on board ship, in fact, what generally happened was that the first port that the ship came to, the inquest would be held there by the local coroner, whether that was a county coroner or in the case of somewhere like Dover is a privileged jurisdiction. So it would be the coroner of Dover. And last of all, and I was just trying to find out a bit more about this, and there is a little tiny mystery here. Another cor the queen or the king, the monarch, has his or her very own coroner. This is known as the coroner of the household and verge. The household is the um, monarch's household, and the verge is a 12-mile radius of wherever the, coroner the, wherever the monarch happens to be. This is the old sort of medieval thing of going round the country. So if someone died within 12 miles of where the royal court or the monarch happened to be, then it was the, the monarch's coroner who took over rather than the local coroner. And that persisted well into the 19th century. In the 19th century in Windsor, when the royal family was there, like Queen Victoria, you know, turned up, and someone died in the town, it was the coroner of the verge who held the inquest. When she wasn't there, it was the county coroner for Berkshire. 
So you have a happy time if you're near somewhere like Sandringham or one of the royal palaces, having to work out whether the king or queen was actually there when your ancestor died. But it is a bit of a, a pain. Anyway, I rang up Windsor, the Royal Archives there, and said, where are the records for the household and verge, the coroner? And he said, oh, um, we don't have them here because they're public records, they're at the National Archives. And I've just been having a chat here. I just assumed that was right. And I thought, I'll have a look at them, you know, see what there is. And, well, no, we can't find them. We've been having a look. I'm going to have to go back to Windsor. There are some, some of the early ones, the medieval ones, and up to sort of James the um, first or second, I think, are here. But actually, where the others are is something that um, I need to do a bit more work on. But again, worth bearing in mind, if you have an ancestor who was a royal servant, for example, if they, you know, royal servants are automatically also covered by the household and verge. So that's the coroner, and that's the sort of jurisdictions that you might find your ancestor dying in. And as I say, the most difficult period to find out is really from the sort of mid-18th century onwards. So what are the clues that might lead you to look for an inquest among your family? What you have to remember is burial registers record ceremonies. They don't record events. They won't, for example, um, include suicides before 1823 for reasons that I'll come to later. So if your ancestor killed themselves, they may not be in the burial register. In fact, the coroner was supposed to give a warrant to allow the body of the deceased person to be buried, and the clerks were supposed to write by coroner's warrant. Not many of them do. In fact, it's very, very rare. But if you find by coroner's warrant, then you know an inquest was held. What you do often find as well, and I don't think people realise this so much, is you see next to the name, fell accidentally from his horse, was drowned accidentally, found drowned. And in fact, those aren't the clerk telling you what happened. Those are inquest verdicts, because it's not for the clerk to say that something was accidental. It had to be determined legally, because especially um, Church of England records, they were legal documents. They were accepted in court before general registration. So if you find what looks like a verdict, then you will know an inquest was held. You may even find that lunacy given there, or lunatic, may suggest that the person committed suicide. Now, how do you find out? Well, there are some things you can do. I think it's a really, really good idea to make a list of all the deaths in your family and then look in the local or before about the end of the night, the mid sort of end 19th century, look in the county newspaper because um, there may have been an inquest or they may just simply report the death. But it is worth doing that for everybody for about a fortnight after the burial just to see whether it's mentioned for one reason or another. The other thing you can do, and people don't often do this because they haven't survived in any great numbers, is to look for day books. Day books are account books that were kept in conjunction with the baptism, marriage and burial registers. They're accounts of what was paid for services. 
They give um, additional information. They quite often give addresses, for example. They're quite useful if you can find them. And the burial, the marriage and the baptism ones, you know, don't tell you a huge amount. But the burial day books, if you can find them, are absolutely brilliant. Because they, in the 19th century, they'll give you where the person came from, the name of the undertaker. They usually give the cause of death. They usually tell you whereabouts in the churchyard the person is buried. And they almost always give the cause of death. So... If you can find a day book, and as I say, unfortunately, they've not survived in any great numbers, you should look for them. There's sometimes the same sort of information as sometimes also in the church warden's accounts. So also check those associated with a burial. Again, London Metropolitan Archives, they enter the day books, quite a few have survived, with the registers. So you'll have like, you know, register of baptism, 1722 to 1738, and then underneath, day book, 1725 to 1732. It may be that not all of them have survived. Now, other places, other record offices don't separate them out. They just, um, you know, it's just listed with sort of miscellaneous parish documents. And who of us among us looks among miscellaneous parish documents? Not many. But it is always worth checking whether there is a day book, an account book, or the church warden's accounts associated with the burial of someone um, in your family. So that's to give you some idea of clues as to start looking. Now, I'm going to talk next about um, who was involved in the inquest, because your ancestor might have been involved in an inquest in a lot of other ways, apart from being the um, the person at the centre of it, the deceased. Um, Now, inquests were often, if not usually until the First World War, held in the local inn. So if your ancestor was an innkeeper, and we've all got innkeepers in our ancestry, and there was an inquest in the village, chances are it was their premises where it was held. And it will say, if the inquest document survives or the newspaper account survives, where it was held. The publicans um, made money by selling refreshments and they also were sometimes paid a fee, which you will find with the, um, the coroner's inquest, the coroner's expenses. They weren't supposed to get them, though. In 1837, um, there's a publican in Hounslow, uh, the King's Arms, refused to allow an inquest to be held there unless he was paid. The coroner was extremely irritated that the parish refused to pay this um, for him. And so the inquest had actually to be held in the shop where the woman had died and where her body was lying. They were all crowded into this very, very small shop with the body there. And Thomas Sterling, he's, uh, I'm very fond of him. He's one of my favourite coroners. He drew himself up and said then all I can say is that the parochial officers of Heston Parish are a mean, pitiable set, and I will speak of their conduct wherever I go. I have filled the office of coroner about 20 years, and I was never so disrespectfully treated. Now, if your ancestor was the parish beadle, it was his job to summon the jury and to ensure that witnesses attended. Um, Charles Dickens, when he was a young man, he served on a jury himself, and he suggests that the beadle would take bribes not to call jurors. 
And this seems to be true. The, the papers of the City of London, the, the coroner's papers there are absolutely brilliant. They kept everything. And what happened was the coroner made a list of potential jurors in a particular parish or near where the person died. And then the beadle went round and annotated it. Wife says not in. Gone away. No one at home. <laughs> and I suspect that a lot of them, because they were jurors, were nearly always shopkeepers. They were respectable, middle-class tradesmen. They weren't paid expenses until 1837, and so a lot of them simply had to shut their business. They would lose money while they were um, going there. They often paid substitutes to attend. They would go down to the local workhouse where some poor old boy was sitting and give him the going rate um, in the early 19th century was two and six to turn up instead. Coroners got really, really annoyed about this. There had to be at least 12 um, jurors. It had to be a majority verdict in which 12 agreed. So that was the minimum number, but in that case it had to be unanimous. But you could call up to 24 what was called a grand jury. All of them had to sign the, the paper which detailed the, um, the results, which is called the Inquisition. They had to sign it. A lot of them put their seal on there. So again, if you can find the coroner's papers, your ancestor may have been on the jury. And if they were nice, respectable, middle-class people, they probably would have been. It was very rarely, you know, the gentry who were called. In fact, there's a case in Carl Shorten in 1836, just before the introduction of um, expenses for jurors. And it says here... Mr. Brightley, one of the overseers, says it was his duty to inform his brother jurors that in consequence of having received directions from the poor law commissioners to discontinue the payment of the two pounds always allowed in that parish from the poor rates, he had no funds from which he could order refreshment. The jury expressed themselves dissatisfied and proceeded in a body to the church where the vestry was sitting. So then they had a toing and froing between the vestry about whether they would get their expenses or not. Finally, Mr. Bridges, the constable, said that he should adopt the course of in future compelling the attendance of the gentry at inquests as well as tradesmen, on the latter of whom the duties have for a length of time fallen, on hearing which the vestry awarded 24 shillings for the expenses of the jury, who expressed themselves satisfied. So, you see, they did get round it sometimes. And again, you may find in the um, vestry minutes or the vestry accounts this kind of ad hoc payment. But as I say, it wasn't a standard thing. Now, there may have been other reasons why jury members were reluctant to attend. Until um, 1926, for example, they actually had to view, the, all the jurors had to view the body um, with the, the coroner or it was not a valid inquest. Nowadays, it's a policeman who has to go with the coroner. said he's not allowed to see the body by himself. And the policeman who told me this said, and we always make sure it's the youngest and greenest recruit. <laughs> Another diary, do you, I don't know if you know, the diary of a village shopkeeper, Thomas Turner, in Sussex. He um, sat on juries several times. And one gives you an idea of the kind of thing that jurors might be asked to do. This is an 18th century one. 
they were called to attend actually a post-mortem, not just the, um, you know, to view the body with the coroner at a post-mortem. We came up to my house where we provided ourselves with all things necessary for the operation, to wit, a bottle of wine and another of brandy and aprons and napkins, together with a quantity of fragrant herbs such as mint, savoury, marjoram, balm, pennyroyal, roses, etc., and threaded all the needles. I mean, they were actually doing all this. We then proceeded to the house. Doctors proceeded to the operation. Um, they made a cut of the, the bottom of the thorax to this, and then two more across the top of the abdomen, and he actually details all this. He was quite a tough old boy, was uh, Thomas Turner. And so you get an idea of if a, a body was found after some time in a house you can see that it's not just the loss of business. You may simply not have wanted to face that kind of thing. So as I say, they were also expected, Thomas Turner elsewhere, um, they found a, a dead man in the wood. You know, he'd, been, he'd died the night before and he was found, you know, in the wood the next day. And he makes it quite clear that when they went to view the body with the coroner, they all examined it to see if there were any marks of injury upon it, that they actually... Before the development of forensic medicine in the same way in the police force in the sort of mid-19th century, the jurors were expected to do a fair amount of the detective work themselves. It was seen, actually, as an advantage if they knew the deceased and witnesses so that they could form an opinion about their you know, trustworthiness. And they took a very, very active part in the thing. They questioned witnesses. They called people to give evidence. They argued with the coroner. Um, they gave their own views on the people involved to their fellow jurors, who, it's quite obvious, often took them more, sen uh, more you know, seriously than they took some of the other witnesses. Now, jurors um, rarely retire to consider their verdict, an earlier writer of advice to coroners, a chap called Umfraville, said in 1761, You are by no means to terrify or threaten them, but readily permit it. Nor are you to suffer anybody to interfere or interrupt them. They must be alone. You wonder what on earth people were doing to the jurors. <laughs> However, Umfraville says, If you want them to come to a fast decision, you can keep them without meat, drink or fire. So, as I said, the other people who were involved, obviously the innkeeper on the premises, the witnesses, there was always the doctor who had to confirm that the death took place and offer their opinion. They weren't paid until 1837 either. And then the other witnesses can be anybody. Family are wonderful, you know, family relationships, things like that. You've got their friends, you've got neighbours, um, nurses in hospital will, you know, tell you about this, prison officers. And remember, people could be imprisoned for debt until 1869, and the prisons were really, really horrible. So... There's a possibility there. There should be. I mean, it was, there was the, the law was that everybody who died in prison, whether it was obviously of natural causes or not, there had to be an inquest on them. So again, you, you kind of think, well, poor thing to be in prison, but here's a chance to find out more about my family, you know. And then workhouses. Of course, workhouse, people who died in the workhouse. There would be, um, you know, information there. The workhouse officials would have to give evidence too. 
Now, witness statements themselves don't often survive in any great numbers. This is where the newspapers do come in and where you have to hope that it's a sort of fairly interesting case. I was able, um, when I did a study of them, to compare a lot of um, news, uh, witness statements that have been preserved with newspaper accounts, and they do seem to be very, very um, accurate. So people could have, you know, did have uh, um, shorthand at the time. <clears throat> what you do get, of course, is the great difference between what the inquest was about, which was finding out who died, when they died, and how they died, and that was what the inquest was about. Whereas on the other hand, what the newspapers were about was, you know, the public interest selling newspapers. And so, as I say, where you can compare the two, there's obviously, there's usually quite a lot more in the newspapers. There was a young girl called um, Amelia Margaret Dawson who committed suicide in 1830. She died from swelling laudanum in a brothel in the Armoury, Westminster. And this um, inquest went on for various reasons for two or three days. And it was covered very, very extensively in the newspapers, all of them. However, um, the witness statements are largely to do with the medical evidence because it wasn't clear when she'd swallowed the laudanum, why she'd done it, how much. She had been with several um, you know, clients, possibly, or possibly friends, and it wasn't clear whether one of them had given it to her. You know? So the medical evidence was really formed the bulk of the witness statements. However, that was kind of dismissed in the newspapers rather fast, and you've got all sorts of things like this. Here we are. The coroner asked the jury if there was any suspicion among them that the laudanum had been forced down the throat of the deceased. At present, there was no evidence to that effect. Juror, we have our doubts about that. Another witness who was called in who gave her name, Jane Parker, a lodger at number three Castle Lane, York Street. As soon as this witness entered the room, the father of the deceased started from his seat and exclaimed in a loud voice, that is the wretch who has been the ruin of my daughter. Now, none of that actually appeared in the coroner's you know, papers, the witness statements, because it wasn't really, strictly speaking, relevant. There was nothing there that could be proved, so it wasn't entered. But it does give you, you know, the sort of a lot more human interest. So where you can always follow up to see if there was a newspaper report or if you find a newspaper report contrarywise see if you can find the papers because they may be complementary so having heard the evidence the jurors had to reach a verdict about how the person had died and one of the odd um, verdicts that you might find is um, visitation of God and this is short for visitation of God by natural causes. Sometimes it comes as natural death. And I've noticed that visitation of God is used when the person died suddenly. You look at it and you think that's either a stroke or a heart attack. But if they died over a slightly longer period of more, you know, recognisable illness or something, it goes as natural causes or natural death. The set, well, accidental death is fairly um, self-evident. Murder or manslaughter does produce a huge number of additional documents. They were obviously um, 
then passed on to the quarter sessions or straight to the assizes. The papers usually go with it, and therefore they will be found with the assize papers in the National Archives. No photocopies in those days, of course, so people tended to pass the piece of paper. Um, <clears throat> and justifiable homicide. There are lots of other additional documents to go with this. Justifiable homicide usually required a pardon from the monarch. So again, you will find these in the National Archives, even if the actual papers are elsewhere. Duels, pitched fights, these go down as uh, manslaughter. Interestingly, traffic accidents are often uh, manslaughter. The, the verdict is often manslaughter. I've also noticed with um, coroners, uh, jurors, that they tend to, in, often in the face of the evidence, they will say murder, where you look at it and you think, I think that's manslaughter. But this is because they knew that later on at a trial, it is much, much easier to reduce um, uh, uh, an indictment to a lesser crime than to bump it up. If they say manslaughter and it then goes on for a trial and they look at it and say, oh, hang about, this is murder, that's a very complicated thing to do legally. So you do find the jurors tending to, you know, go in really, really hard and then later at the trial it's reduced. So again, always follow it up if it looks like something, negligence, uh, justifiable homicide, manslaughter, and you can find all the sort of, um, you know, books on how to trace criminal ancestors will tell you where to look for those records. Now another one, um, which is really, really interesting, and I do an entire lecture on it, so you may come back later, is suicide. If it was decided that the person had killed themselves, it, there was a further decision for the jury to make. Whether they knew what they were doing or whether they were insane, lunatic and distracted, as often goes down, at the time. And there were huge, huge implications for this. I mentioned that before 1823, a suicide, a suicide who knew what he or she was doing was found fellow de se, literally the murderer, a felon of oneself, the self-murderer. And they would not be buried in consecrated ground. They wouldn't be buried in the churchyard. They were usually buried at the crossroads with a stake through the body. And this is a really sort of predates Christianity. The aim of this was the stake through the body would anchor the unquiet spirit to the earth it would not be able to return to haunt the living. And should it manage to escape, because it was at a crossroads, it wouldn't know which road to take, so it would be trapped there. There's a thought next time you're waiting for the traffic lights to change. <laughs> but So after 1823, people could be buried in the churchyard, but without a service. Sometimes you will find the clerk does write without a service, but sometimes they don't. I investigated a case uh, where two women had, I think it's a suicide pact actually, but the jurors found that one of them had taken the poison without not know, knowing what she was doing, and the other had <coughs> deliberately poisoned her friends, so she was a fellow to say murderer. And they were both buried in the same churchyard, but only the one who was found to have taken the poison accidentally is in the burial register. 
the other one was buried next to her and they are both in the day book. That was one of the lucky places where the day book survives. So again, worth checking. If, however, the person were found to be um, lunatic, insane, non-compost mentis, didn't know what they were doing, then they could not only be buried in the churchyard with no problems at all, their property wasn't confiscated. Again, with um, you know, the sort of the medieval things, murderers, and I should have mentioned that in the last section, murderers' property was forfeit to the crown. Suicides' property, fellow to say suicides, their property was forfeit to the crown. That wasn't abolished until the late 19th century, 1870. Forfeiture of suicides' goods was abolished in 1870. I'll talk a bit more about that later. But you see, that verdict was one that was very, very important for the jurors to reach. They quite often um, would say that someone was um, insane so that they could keep their property and the expense of looking after a destitute family wouldn't fall on the ratepayers. And the Court of Star Chamber, Henry VII set up the Court of Star Chamber um, to review this kind of decision and he would pull things in because the Crown was desperately short of money and so people who were obviously insane were judged to be fellow to say. Whole villages were fined for not, for giving the wrong verdict, you know. If you've got people who die in medieval times, you are so, so lucky because you have lots of records. But, you know, by this time, by the 18th century, the period I'm looking at, people were less bothered. So, you know, they didn't take so much notice of it. The next verdict that you might find, want of the necessaries of life. And this is starvation. You find this, you know, um, beggars found at night or, uh, you know, after a, a cold night. They might find um, inclemency of the weather, which is exposure. Your ancestor travelling home one, you know, fro frozen January night from market, slips from his horse and dies of exposure. That's inclemency of the weather. And last of all, there are what are called neutral or narrative verdicts. Found drowned. That's all we know. That's a neutral verdict. A narrative verdict recounts what happened. By administration of poison, how or by whom does not appear to the jury. And I've looked at all the papers in that case, well, the, the newspaper accounts in that case, and it's a chap up in North London, and it was either the wife or the son that they got away with it. <laughs> So, depending on some verdicts, there are other, you know, documents that you can look for. As I mentioned, things like um, the papers to do with, for example, um, the, the confiscation of murderers or suicide property. Um, people would petition the Crown. Very often the jurors, although they passed a verdict of fellow to say would say, um, but we will help you to petition the Crown for the return of, of property. And that, again, all the petitions are in the National Archives in Chancery. So you need to find out, first of all, where your ancestor died. What is the jurisdiction? It's not where they lived, it's where they died. Um, to sort out whose jurisdiction, and Jeremy Gibson is very, very helpful, you may find other records. As I say, there are lots that I've mentioned in the National Archives. 
But if your ancestor dies in hospital or dies in a workhouse or some other establishment, the inquest papers won't be kept there, but in the minutes of the, um, the establishment, there may be a mention of this. There may be a mention of expenses. There may be a mention of, um, you know, what happened when the inquest was held. I said I haven't done much about using the National Archives. There's a book, there's an article um, by J. Leslie Hodson. He wrote it for a magazine in 1925 to show how he tracked down the um, inquest papers on the Elizabethan dramatist Christopher Marlowe. 1588, killed in a brawl in Deptford. And they, the papers weren't found until 1925 by this chap. But how he thought about it, what decisions he made, where he looked, is a brilliant example of how to use the earlier papers in the National Archives. And they was reprinted in a book, which I think is now out of print, but you may be able to get somewhere, called The Pleasures of Murder. Now, finally before you go off and have a look at the pleasures of murder. Let me just finish up with an example of the kind of information you can get from inquests that you would not get from any other official record. And this is a newspaper account from 1840. An inquest on Isaac Sayer, age 70, tailor and habit maker in, in Bedfordbury in London. He um, hanged himself on his uh, 70th birthday. And uh, they called various people. Anyway, um, his nephew, who lived in the same house, gave evidence. My uncle drank hard, but his wife drank harder. He drank because she did, and because she made his home very uncomfortable, lying abed of a morning and not getting him his breakfast. She spent every farthing she could lay hands on in drink, and there was a drawer full of pawnbrokers' duplicates for things pledged in order to procure gin. And then um, his, one of his brothers turned up to give evidence too. If, said one of the brothers, he had followed my example and become a total abstinence man, this would not have happened. Sobriety would not have depressed his mind. It would have enabled him to support the most intolerable of all miseries, matrimonial ones. Drink has been his ruin, as it has been and will be the ruin of thousands. Verdict, temporary insanity. And I think you get from that a real insight into that poor man's life, you know. The, um, the wife drinking, the, brother, the nephew slagging him off, the brother telling him to give up and become a total abstinence man. You would never get that from anywhere else. So as I say, I hope I've given you at least a flavour of the kind of information that you can get and how to access it. Thank you very much. This podcast was recorded on the 2nd of August 2012 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>